Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Paget here and this week I'm really excited to be joined by Stephen Heller to discuss his latest book, The Logo Design Idea Book and we're also going to talk about the history of logo design too. But before we jump into that, I want to share a really incredible uh, resource with you guys. And this is for listeners that are wanting to build or grow their own creative agency. So in the last season, I interviewed a guy called Sean Tambagahan, and he's someone who's built his own design agency and in the process has become a real master of not only building and running a business, but brand strategy as well. And uh, what he's done is he's created a, a really incredible training resource called the Butler Box. And that includes literally everything that you could need to start your own agency. So we're talking things like how you position your business, how you market it, how you sell your services, uh, what proposal templates look like, strategy frameworks, uh, processes, and so on. It's literally everything that you could need to build a professional brand agency. So the uh, Butler Box, as you may expect, is a high-priced item, but we're talking $997, and I will be sharing a 25% uh, discount with you. But whilst this is a high-priced item, considering it's the type of thing that would take a, a business owner years to build and, and create, to not only have access to that, but to have it at only that price, it's amazing because it's the type of thing that will help you to position your brand to get higher paying clients and to you know conduct strategy sessions properly to do things like securing ongoing income with retainers uh, properly managing projects and so on it's it's all the tools and knowledge that you would need to take your business to the next level and um, I think for what it is the price is very very cheap and I recommend you check it out so to take a look at the butler box just visit agency.butlerbranding.com and if you use the promo code logogeek you will get 25% off. Again that's agency.butlerbranding.com and if you use the promo code logogeek you will get 25% off. So anyway, a few weeks back, I was lucky enough to be sent an advanced copy of the Logo Design Idea book, the new book from Stephen Heller and Gail Anderson. As soon as it arrived, I couldn't wait to open it and I was fascinated by the stories of each of the logos presented in the book. So uh, I was really keen to bring Stephen on the podcast to speak about the book and to dive into his extensive knowledge on graphic design history. For anyone that's not aware of Stephen Heller, he is the author, co-author and editor of over 100 books on design and popular culture. And uh, he's someone who's had an incredible career in graphic design with 33 years uh, working as art director uh, for the New York Times. I also see Stephen as one of the most knowledgeable people in the world on uh, graphic design history. So I promise you that this episode will be a real treat. So let's get straight into this. Here is the interview with Stephen Heller. You very recently released a new book, the Logo Design Idea book with Gail Anderson. And I've loved to spend the time I have with you now talking about 
your new book and also your thoughts around logo design. So to kick off the discussion, can you share with us an overview of what the book is about? Well, the book is part of a series. In fact, it's the last volume in the series. Uh, these idea books started with graphic design idea book, uh, then typography idea book, illustration idea book, and then logo idea book, uh, which I do with one of my collaborators, uh, Gail Anderson, who is the uh, chair at SVA for, for BFA design. And uh, Gail and I have done about 15 books together. And uh, this was just an opportunity to kind of take a, a semi-deep dive. Uh, it's not a full dive into different aspects of uh, logo design. Uh, since the focus is on an idea, we had to... Uh, kind of extract, whether from the creator or from ourselves, what idea they're trying to use to get across whatever message it is that their logo is embodying. So the book is uh, partly anecdotal, uh, partly uh, an overview of the process, and partly a critique. Mm, it's a really great book and I'm really enjoying it so far so I, I hope that listeners will go and check it out for themselves and uh, I actually wasn't aware that it was part of a whole series so I'll be sure to um, go back and check out the um, other books in, in the set as well. Now I, I really do love the concept of the book because I've always been really really fascinated as to where ideas actually come from and um i'm curious to hear from you like working through the logos in the book did did you notice any kind of pattern as to where ideas usually come from well it really depends on the kind of logo it is is it a a, a logo mark is it a uh, uh a letter form or letters uh, is it pictorial? Is it abstract? Uh, these are all issues that either begin with a discussion with the client or start with the designer having uh, had a broad view of what that logo is supposed to accomplish. Uh, you know, logos include trade characters and they include uh, uh, word marks. So uh, sometimes the trade character and the word mark are put together. So where they come from uh, depends on what they're trying to do. That's, that's generally the conclusion that I've come to as well, that ideas really come from uh, goals. Um, so I want to ask you, based on the research done for the book, was there an example that you that particularly stood out for you? And, and could you share with us the story behind that? Well, since there are 50 short case studies, um, we looked through, uh, Gail and I, probably 150 to get to the 50. And part of our mandate was to show old and new. Uh, 
some things that are very familiar like FedEx or Lego and other things that are not familiar at all and some things that uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect like the ACDC logo. Um, you know, it, being a rock band logo, uh, it doesn't usually find its way into uh, the high-end, the so-called high-end logo design. Uh, but the first one that I thought of for the book uh, was the AGE, the Algemeine, uh, uh Electroshaft Gesundschaft, uh, which I'm mispronouncing, of course. Uh, but that was Peter Barron's uh, logo for the German electrical company uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And it was really the trigger for corporate identity uh, and the trigger for a lot of things uh, happening in the identity world in the, the early part of the century. And his mark was a uh, three letters, AEG, um, usually corporations and, or businesses, uh, industries would use their full name and their full name would be either something very pedestrian like Acme so-and-so, or it would be the name of the uh, family, uh, Schlitzner brothers and son. Um, but the AEG was uh, a different breed of animal. Uh, so he created a kind of um, honeycomb uh, design in which uh, the letters fit into each of the, the honeycombs. A on the left-hand lower, B, G, or E on the top, uh, middle and uh, G on the right lower uh, with an empty space in the middle. And that became uh, kind of the guideline for which uh, the entire company was uh, built in terms of its identity. Mm, it, it's not a logo I've seen prior to reading the book. And, and whilst it's a very simple uh, logo, it is really fascinating to hear that it's one design that really made uh, such an impact on uh, identity design at the time. So I, I appreciate you highlighting that. Uh, you mentioned then that you study both old and new designs with the old being uh, worked on prior to the introduction of computers studying the logos in the way that you did did you notice anything about them that differed from the old to the new well i think that you know the the style of design graphic style uh changes from generation to generation in part because fashions change uh in part because technology allows for uh variations on a theme. Uh, but I would say that short of uh, adding overlapping colors or being a little more abstract than usual, um, there aren't really that many changes. That a logo really is supposed to have a timeless quality to it. And the ones that 
don't seem to work very well are those that are just uh, linked to a particular moment and place and time. Uh, that isn't to say they're all like that. I mean, Coca-Cola is a Victorian uh, letter f- lettering uh, issue that was adapted and, and uh, improved over the years with its own typeface that uh, Neville Brody designed for it most recently. Uh, but still, the main Coca-Cola uh, word uh, comes from the 19th century. And we see it as something that has no time. It just has the product as its uh, focal point. So there are times when logos just transcend uh, all the stylistic fluctuations and uh, are the product itself. True. I, I know I've personally always been drawn to um, more of the older logo design gallery books for inspiration because you can see uh, what characteristics still remain current today and uh, what makes something timeless. Um, it's the same with information and processes too. For example, I've always felt that I've learned more from uh, older books from individuals like Paul Rand, who I feel really established what works uh, well. And I know a lot of uh, designers today still uh, reference those same principles. Well, I think, I mean, I did a a biography of Paul Rand uh, and I have a Paul Rand book coming out this uh, fall with Princeton Architectural Press Moleskin. Um, I, you know, he was building his logos uh, on earlier German logos. He was very fond of a designer named Wilhelm Defke and H.W. Uh, Hadank. Um, and one was quite modern in his approach and streamlined and s- simplified everything. And the other was a little more classical and ornate. Uh, so I think those things were in the back of uh, Rand's mind when he was doing his own logos. And he was articulate enough to be able to explain why he did a logo and intelligent enough to know that when he did a logo that was a revision of some existing logo, that it was a refinement rather than a reinvention. Uh, but I see many designers today speaking logo speak or what you might call brand speak. Uh, And whether they're taking it from Paul Rand or from Lester Beale or from Saul Bass, uh, probably it enters into their thinking. Uh, But I think it's just, there are certain ways of doing something. Even if you go back to the heraldic traditions, there were ways of making a heraldic shield uh, that were common throughout uh, that part of history. Um, heraldic shields have kind of gone out of style in terms of corporations, but not in terms of certain branding elements like on beers or liquors and, and the like. Um, so I would say in answer to your question that there's probably uh, a element of the 
the design process that looks at precedent. And then there's the element of the design process that builds on what's in front of you and what you have available and uh, what comes out of your own imagination. Mm. I've always been fascinated in the history of Lego design. And uh, whilst I've read a lot of books on, on the topic, in, in terms of names, my my knowledge only really goes back as far as the likes of people like Paul Rand and Sal Bass. And uh, you just mentioned a number of names that I've not yet come across. Um, as I know, you have an incredibly extensive knowledge of uh, graphic design history for people like myself that are interested in um, digging further into uh, this kind of thing are there any people or references that you would recommend to look into so that we can see what people like Poran would have been inspired by yeah well the people that I mentioned like Defki and Hadank are just two of many um there was Carl Schulpig. Uh, many of them were German. Uh, in fact, one of the first books I ever wrote an introduction for was on German trademarks of the turn of the century. And it was edited by uh, then a young designer named Leslie Carbaga. And he bought into a collection of logos that had been collected by uh, uh, a man named Paul Hornon, who was also a logo designer, but a collector as well. And uh, there have been many vintage books of uh, logo designs, uh, or even uh, getting into the Ex Libris tradition, because Ex Libris, in a way, are logos. Uh, so I would say just keep your eye out for, uh, vintage histories of design. And, uh, if, if you can find, uh, cause it's out of print, there were two editions of, uh, German trademark design, uh, or, you know, there are trademark registries that go back to the 19th century where, uh, and they're in most countries throughout the world uh, where the logo maker or the business that it was done for uh, registers uh, or copyrights uh, their mark. And uh, when I was doing uh, a series of books on Art Deco graphic design for Chronicle years ago with my wife, Louise Feely, um, we would always include a section on logos and the source for those logos were these trademark volumes. And although it didn't tell me necessarily why somebody used what they used, you could posit certain reasons because the symbol related to the product or um, the lettering was ornate uh, and gave off a sense of heritage for the company. Um, but I did mention uh, Defke a moment ago, and his was a, a company called Wilhelm Work. And um, I write in one of my books, on, I've done a few books on the swastika, which is 
probably the most well-known logo of any logo in the world, um, that uh, Defke had done his own version of the swastika or the hacking cruise, the hooked cross. Um, and his assistant wrote Paul Rand a letter long after Defke had passed on, saying that the Nazis had taken his version and used that, which is apocryphal and can't be really proven. Uh, but he did a number or a small number of uh, portfolio books in which he would show the various logos that he did. And about five years ago, um, an independent publisher did a huge book on uh, Defke's logo and poster designs. So if you were able to find that, it was called Wilhelm Defke. Um, you would see a lot of the material that influenced Paul Rand in his work. Mm. Mm. I'd absolutely love to see that. So I know after this interview, I'm going to have a look online, see if I can uh, find anything, even if it's a couple of scans or something like that. Because I know uh, graphic design books have kind of become collectible in some cases. Oh, yeah. I, I know some of the older ones that I have there because they become out of print. Uh, and, uh, you know, someone online might mention it, they become uh, quite valuable. But I'd, I'd definitely love to keep an, an eye out for those. I've got a couple of friends, sometimes when we're in London, we go into the um, old bookshops where, you know, where they've got like uh, things like vintage books. And if one of us finds something with uh, Legos, then we tend to snatch it and buy it. So uh, definitely going to be keeping an eye out for those. So thank you for those recommendations. Well, the uh, Defke book I th was a limited edition, but a very good one. Uh, but what you find certainly in France, England, and uh, Germany, and Italy, uh, Italy had a number of uh, terrific poster artists who also did the trademarks for the companies they worked for, like uh, Seneca for Butoni. Um, and Fortunato de Pero for Campari. Um, so you don't even, it doesn't even have to be a specific logo designer, the way Landor in the United States was known for logos um, when it began on, and then it expanded into corporate identity, and now it's totally into branding. I mean, that's how the evolution has worked. Uh, but there's an awful lot to be found. And the Japanese publishers were very um, enthusiastic about showing off logos, in part because, you know, their visual culture was based on these pictograms that were indeed logos. This is really fascinating. Uh, we're, we're slowly diving into the history of logo design. It's uh, uh, got me thinking um, about the early origins of, of logo design. And uh, I, I feel you're uh, probably the most knowledgeable on this topic. So since I have the opportunity to ask, uh, can I ask you to share some of your thoughts on the origins of logo design? Well, I just wrote something about uh, the origins of the brand and it, at least one of the origins of the brand, and that is livestock branding. Uh, 
uh, and by extension, uh, property branding, and by extension, branding of slaves. And these were called stigmas, you know, from the term stigmata, which is uh, what Jesus Christ had on his hands from having those nails hammered in on the crucifix, the crucifix itself being a logo. Uh, so, you know, you, it, it, it's hard to kind of say what the origin of the logo is. It's probably easier to say what the origin of the modern logo is. But if you go, if you want to go back in time, uh, the swastika is one place to go. And that was written about in 1896 or so by a man named Thomas Wilson for the Smithsonian Institution. And he traces that mark, that symbol, uh, back into prehistory. So it represented various things, but it can be defined as a logo. And ultimately, it became a logo of the, the Nazi party in a slightly different form than what it is for, say, the Buddhists or the Hindus. Um, but b the idea of creating a logo was to, to uh, protect property and deter thievery. So the brand that you would see a cattle driver uh, take out of a, a burning fire and then uh, affix to the back hindquarter of a cow or sheep, that's really the origin of branding. And then uh, I have another theory, and that is uh, some of the branding uh, that we know of today originated from stencils, uh, stenciling uh, across, say, burlap bags or wooden boxes, product names and uh, uh, descriptions of those products uh, were used when there were no mass-produced individual products. Uh, uh, products to be bought in stores. You bought them in bulk and it came from a particular producer or factory. That's a really fascinating theory, um, especially when you consider how logos are used today. It really makes a lot of sense. Well, when I have a book out called uh, Stencil Type that I did with Louise Feely for uh, Thames and Hudson, and I have some stencils in there that are well over 100 years old for coffee, tea, tobacco. And these were, you know, essentially brands. Uh, they weren't logo in the sense that a logo is either, Paul Rand once told me, a logo is either three letters or less or a picture or a picture made of those three letters. How, why he picked three, I don't know. Uh, I just took it on faith. But, um, you know, a monogram is a logo, and monograms go back uh, a long ways. Uh, a tattoo is, depending on how it's rendered, is a logo that brands you. Uh, it 
also tells a story. And many logos tell stories. Uh, they tell the stories that the company or the advertising agency wants to be told, uh, but they represent the product. They represent the legacy of that product or the history of that product. Uh, and they represent, in certain cases, the future of that product. And so you and I get very attached to a particular brand. Uh, again, I was talking to somebody recently about how the Gap, when it changed its typeface, its logo typeface, it's just a word mark. It says Gap. Uh, but they changed it from uh, a sans serif to a serif or vice versa. And people were up in arms about it because they invest so much in their particular brand. I just want to take a short break to tell you a little about something I've been working on that I'm really excited about. It's called the Logo Designers Box Set. Six eBooks designed to help you through the logo design process from what tools you need, how to create a logo design brief, how to come up with ideas, how you present your work to clients, what files you need to prepare and how you also find clients of your own too. These six eBooks are totally free to download and you can find them by heading to boxset.logogeek.uk and by downloading them you'll also be signed up to my email newsletter where I'll keep you up to date with all the latest podcast and content that I'm creating so I hope that you'll sign up and find that uh, box set really useful again that's boxset.logogeek.uk now let's get back to the interview I know with that gap example do you think that they did the right thing, uh, you know, going back to what they had uh, originally? Because I, I know here today, now, um, whenever a company rebrands, there's always an uproar. You know, it's it's predictable almost. Um, but you wait a certain length of time, and then uh, people get used to it. I, I've always described it like if someone came into your home and changed your sofa, even if it was a better sofa, you'd be annoyed. And oh, uh, that's how I always feel the the, the reaction is. Uh, um, I know F1 in particular, that rebrand, I've not seen an uproar like that <laughs> um, since I've been, you know, using social media to share in, uh, information um, uh, about this. But I, th I, th I think, you know, you asked me whether it was a good idea to, to listen yes. to the mob. And... Uh, I can't say it was good or bad. I think it was interesting that they felt insecure enough that they wanted to shore up their their image by listening to the people. And then, you know, they went a little overboard and did a crowdsourcing exercise. Um, you know, I think corporations like people uh, get worried about their, their, their image. Uh, and you're right about the couch. I've had that <clears throat> very experience where, uh, in my country house, I went upstairs for a few minutes. And while I was upstairs, the guests rearranged the furniture and I went crazy. Uh, and it was an irrational crazy, but it was, you know, what I was used to was, was altered. And 
you know, subconsciously, what does that mean? Does it mean the product is altered as well? When Coke changed its uh, recipe uh, to the new Coke, you know, they had to go back to classic Coke. Uh, so that had something to do not only with the logo, but with the quality of the product, the taste of the product. Um, so, you know, a lot of things get built in, embedded in uh, a particular brand and the logo is the more obvious of the uh, elements. So if you see that change, you get a little worried or maybe not. Maybe you don't get worried. Maybe you say, oh, it's about time. But I know, for example, General Electric, GE, hasn't changed its logo since its Art Nouveau roots and everybody is quite happy with it and would not change it for anything in the world. Paul Rand used to call logos rabbit's feet, that they brought you luck and that you wouldn't then cut the rabbit's foot in half. And he was once asked to change the logo for uh, American Express. And he did a lovely job retaining the fundamental elements, <coughs> excuse me, of American Express, but um, streamlining it. And, you know, if, if you're looking for a streamlined version of something, he couldn't have done it any better. But that's not what people want. They want that history. They want that classic look. Same with Ford Motors. You know, there's that script Ford in an oval. Paul Rand was asked to change it, and he did some exercises where he changed it to uh, a sans-serif uh, typeface, a Futura-like typeface, maybe accidents grotesque, and it was ultimately turned down. Mm, yeah, I've seen I've seen that, and uh, it's it is weird looking back at it uh, here today because it looks incredibly futuristic, um, and uh, I, I I do think that. Ford made the right choice to uh, stick with what you have. Um, I find it interesting brands like uh, Ford and Coca-Cola, even though I can actually see that, that those scripts and so on are very old. I've grown so familiar with it. I don't even see it as old when I see it immediately. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's it's part of the, voc the vernacular. Uh, it's it, It's like uh, you look at your face in the mirror, and if you're looking at it every day, you don't see the changes that occur. And then one day you wake up and you look and you say, gee whiz, I've got all these wrinkles now. And my teeth are in a different position. Uh, you know, that's an extreme example of uh, radical change, of uh, an identity. Uh, with Coke, there are changes. I mean, it's like with the New York Times. Um, I had this experience. I was art director of the book review for 30 years. And I had asked the cartoonist Chris Ware to do a cover for the book review for our special summer issue. And I told him he could do anything he wanted with the cover and he could do anything he wanted inside the, uh, the magazine. And so he decided to change our masthead from, uh, I think then it was a Bookman logo, 
uh, Bookman typeface um, to something that was totally of his invention, which was fine uh, and wonderful to see that change. But he also changed the New York Times nameplate, which I didn't even recognize as a change. And the design director said to me, you can't do that. And I said, what? He says, change the New York Times logo. And then it, I looked at them side by side, and one was definitely older than the other, that Chris had gone back to the 1928 version and replaced the 1998 version. Uh, so sometimes the changes are imperceptible to the naked eye, but not to the, uh, to the designer's eye. Mm. I'm often surprised to see brands that do make incredibly minor tweaks to their logo, especially considering the high costs and times that go into things like uh, the registration and uh, trademark process. Uh, I mean, one example that comes to mind is the recent ikea update it was such a minor change that the average person wouldn't even notice the the different from the old to the new um i mean it was so subtle in fact that um if i didn't read about it on any of these uh, uh graphic design blogs online i don't think i would have noticed yeah but you know they're obviously doing it on a subconscious level uh they're doing it because some creative director or other person high up in the company said, uh, there's a chink in our armor and let's fill it up with putty. Uh, and so that incremental change uh, doesn't alter the popular perception, but it helps the uh, corporate uh the corporate one. And going back to Rand again, he used to say the hardest thing to, uh, and the most common thing to do with logos is to refine them. Uh, you know, he would do a logo while he was talking to a potential client on the phone, many of which were never used, many of which he didn't even get the job. Uh, but he would just play around to see what he might do. And even if he got the solution within the first 10 minutes, it would take him six months to do the refinement. Wow, six months. Or longer. I, I do know he was doing it by hand, uh, but it's a very long time. It's a long time, but you know, you go back and forth with, uh, uh, do you put a period at the end? Do you put a little uh, swash? I mean, there are all sorts of things that uh, you might do to make a logo just that much more perfect because the logo is going to stay with you for 10, 20, 30, 40, 100, 200 years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think here today, because the speed that you can make changes with uh, tools like Illustrator, it does sound like an incredibly uh, long time, but I, I do understand that really tiny incremental changes can you know, really change how something looks. So it's interesting to to hear that uh, Paul did put that level of time into, you know, really fine-tuning something. Well, also, he wasn't alive when this occurred, but yeah. uh, there are different uh, approaches for the different platforms you're on. So something that would look good in print 
may need a slight adjustment for a mobile phone, which me- might need a slight adjustment uh, for uh, a, a website or uh, any other kind of device. So I think that people are aware that uh, the media controls a certain amount of what you do. And then one other thing is the sub-brands. You know, there are so many, I mean, this is not a new phenomenon. There have always been sub-brands for companies. Uh, But getting those right is a very time-consuming proposition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very true. Now, I want to go back to something that you mentioned in the introduction of uh, the uh, book that we're talking about. Uh, You said that an awkwardly composed device could just as easily become memorable and uh, impactful as an elegantly produced one. I know there will be some people in the audience that might be surprised to hear that. So could I ask for you to elaborate on that, please? Like, since aesthetics is not important, what is it that you feel that would make a a logo successful? Well, aesthetics is important. And when you're a designer working on a logo, if aesthetics is not your uh, one of your key concerns, uh, you shouldn't be doing the job. Yeah, but a lot of logos are given to non-designers. They're given to architects, let's say, for restaurants or for building logos. They're uh, giving, given to uh, people who may work in branding but have never been typographers. Uh, so, you know, walk down the street and just... See for yourself how many things as a designer you would change. There are many, 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 and how many things, of course, have been changed. Simple things like uh, Arby's roast beef uh, fast food restaurant. You know, they, I remember when they changed that. It wasn't a radical change, but it was a change enough to know that somebody else was brought in to do the branding. Um, but I do think that, uh, logos grow on you. Uh, if they're, if the gap had stuck with, uh, its alteration, people would have gotten used to it. They wouldn't have lost customers. It's ultimately about their product, not about the logo. You know, the, the, there are people who get exorcised about the logo and I think of them, a very small percentage would, would actually stop using the product. Um, but, you know, look at NASA. Uh, the original NASA logo, which they called the meatball, uh, has a globe and a kind of swoosh around it and really looks uh, like 1950s science as opposed to the worm Uh, which just said NASA uh, and was elegant and uh, much more contemporary. But they went back to the meatball. And that says they wanted to go back to tradition, but what signal does it give off? It gives off the signal that they're going back to tradition, but 
does it mean that they've progressed as a as a laboratory for the future? Uh, the meatball is aesthetically less pleasing than the uh, worm in many people's opinion, but at the same time, it's more appealing because it has that kind of old-fashioned heritage look. Mm, I know I'm quite into um, space travel exploration. I've got a collection of the... Uh, NASA have released a, a number of uh, coins that are based on the patches that were made for the um, Apollo missions, and I've got uh, that collection. And uh, I've always thought that particular meatball, whilst it's not the most elegantly uh, creative uh, logo, um, it it's got an aesthetic to it that immediately makes you think of government associations uh some kind of important body so i i've always uh found that type of thing really interesting that there is kind of a, a look for large organizations like that and you know if you was to you know to take the meatball and try and redesign it in some way i feel like it would lose that that vibe um, yeah sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't like when Bell Telephone in the United States was uh, its original logo was a couple of concentric circles with t words around it and a very engraved look looking bell. Uh, and then Saul Bass took it over and he refined it and simplified it and streamlined it. So it was just the bell. Um and it, it worked, you know, it, it said Bell Telephone is coming out of the age of the cranked up phone and the party line and going into a whole other realm of uh, technology. Um, and I don't think anybody would really want to go back to the original Bell. You can see it in its old form in the movie 2001. And it, you know, it always amuses me when I watch that movie, which, you know, is really uh, showing the future in a kind of timeless way. I mean, the spaceships are still viable. You know, they, they look like advanced versions of the Enterprise. Uh, but then, you know, you see and you see the Pan Am, the old Pan American logo as well. But when you see the Beltel logo, it's like an anachronism. So sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I think it's also based on our individual perceptions. Mm. Talking about the bow logo on YouTube, you can actually find Sal Bass's original pitch video for the, for the bow logo. And, uh, whilst it's, it's quite, uh, an old example and, uh, how logos are, are used and, uh, brands and so on are, are used to change quite a lot since then. I still think that video pretty much holds up today as an incredible way to present logo design work. Um, so I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes for this episode. Cool. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, there, there have been a number of reprints of standards manuals. Unit editions produced two volumes of uh, standard manuals. Standard manual, uh, the group, did the New York subway system. They did the NASA standard standards manual. I wrote an introduction for a, a French publisher that did the IBM standards manual. Um, 
when you look at those standards manuals and you see everything in alignment and the way they're supposed to be, uh, it's like the world comes together harmoniously. So what they're creating is their own ecosystem using the logo as the, uh, uh, the sun god and then everything emanating from that. Mm. I have those uh, manuals that Unit Editions uh, released, and uh, yeah, they're they're amazing. I've I've got the IBM one as well, uh, which is it's, they're they're really good. I mean, obviously things have you know moved on since a lot of those um, guidelines are put together, but it's still you know absolutely fascinating resource to look through. And what Unit Editions have done is incredible. I think. Yeah, it's it's. I have a few of Paul Rand's original. Uh, loose leaf binder standards manuals, including one that he used for cutting up and pasting things together in other ways. And, you know, the idea of a loose leaf binder to me is a little old fashioned, but they're still used. Um, and otherwise, uh, just about everything in that standards manual has a timeless quality. Uh, Whereas I look at old type yeah. books and you know they're old. Yeah, very true. I'm I'm really fascinated by what you mentioned about those Paul Rand uh, manuals. I, uh, I've only ever been to New York once, but luckily when I was there, it's when they had uh, like a Paul Rand exhibit and they had a number of his items on show. Yeah, a lot of my stuff was in that exhibit. It was at the New York City, City of New York Museum. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was about three years three or four right. years ago right. that so design was that, is everywhere yeah that's the one so was that a lot of your stuff in there yeah there was about a third wow. of my stuff in there wow so you must have a one serious uh, collection what what do you normally do with them do you just keep them in storage somewhere or do you well this is a sore point at the moment because as i'm getting older i'm trying to divest and you know put into collections and give to archives and uh, then there are those things that you just don't want to uh, let go of. But, uh, you know, I have a, a whole bunch of sketches that Rand had done, and I'll probably be giving them to the School of Visual Arts Archive in another year. Um, but it keeps you in touch with the designer, even if it's only in a kind of uh, spiritual ersatz physical way yeah i understand i i'd absolutely love to see those poor Rand sketches so um i don't know if you've already put them in one of your books or if you're planning to put them into the new one that you mentioned well the new book is is uh, a lot of his doodles uh, okay. and some of it is already online i think i did one called modern monkey modern uh on design observer okay I, i'd love to see that so after this i'll be searching for that and um i'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well uh now we are nearly at the hour point so i'm gonna ask you one more question uh to close off the interview uh it is potentially a big question but as, as someone who studied the theory of graphic design at, at it, in an extensive, at an extended level, uh, what do you feel are some of the most essential things that graphic designers of today should be aware of? 
Well, it is a big question. I, I have a book that just came out called uh, Teaching Graphic Design History. And it goes through uh, a number of, it's filled with, with essays by people who do teach graphic design history, typographic history, uh, information graphics history. Uh, I think what designers should know is the past uh, so that they don't reinvent the wheel. Although reinventing the wheel is a way of learning how the wheel works. Um, but I, I, I'd say uh, in a semi-self-serving way that the thing most designers should do is read. And that means they should read about their field, they should read about other fields, uh, and they should read about art and uh, see where the intersections lie. I know myself growing up, I was never a big reader. I'd, uh, you know, always liked drawing and I, I wanted to get into graphic design, but it's only, um, you know, in like the last 10 or 15 years or so that I've actually been uh, interested in and in reading. And I would say I'd, I've actually learned more about putting artwork together and, you know, doing uh, good physical graphic design work from actually reading and uh i i do think it it's because you're able to learn from people that have dedicated their entire life to graphic design you know the the likes of poor and and you can just learn everything that they ever picked up in their life within the space of a couple of days well it's true but i also think that more and more uh literature the library of graphic design practice and thought uh, has expanded exponentially in the last 10 to 20 years so that there's a lot of stuff to read. And I wouldn't get totally wrapped up in reading only about graphic design, although it's tempting sometimes. Uh, I, I think just the process of reading and of being worldly and of being knowledgeable uh, is what a graphic designer should be. Because ultimately, when you're young, you want to make those beautiful things. Uh, you see uh, Stefan Sagmeister doing X, Y, and Z, and you want to do that exact same thing. But you need to know why uh, that thing is being done and how you can improve upon it or how you can build upon it. Uh, and we constantly have to educate ourselves. I know a number of graphic designers who have gone into other fields, but graphic design is their foundational field. I think that's an incredible way to end the interview. So Stephen, thank you so much for your time. It has been a real honor to speak with you. My pleasure. Thanks for doing it. What an incredible interview. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. It, it was a real honor to be able to speak with you. And I know that everyone that's listened to this uh, would have got immense value from it. So thank you from me and everyone listening to you. Uh, to learn more about Stephen Heller, head over to his website, hellerbooks.com or head over to the show notes where you'll find links to that and any of the books and resources mentioned in this interview. To find the show notes, just head over to logogeek.uk forward slash 5.2. 
Now, if you want to chat about this interview with me and over 7,000 other logo designers from around the world, join the Logo Geek community on Facebook. And you can join that for free just by heading over to logogeek.uk forward slash community. Now, if you want a more interactive experience where you can chat with me and other designers on uh, live group video calls, that is part of something I've been working on called Logo Geek Plus. And uh, it's been an absolutely amazing way to really get to know other designers and to also uh, help and support other people too because it's been a really really great way of um, supporting one another as part of that i've also been bringing in uh surprise guests uh, to to join in the discussions too a couple of weeks back we had uh ben loys who's been on the podcast and he was kind enough to uh, share the whole of his process from start to finish including contracts and uh, how he presents his work as well and there's a video of that in the group but also next week um, I'm excited that David Airy has agreed to join us too um, so that's going to be happening on Thursday next week so if you'd like to be involved in that make sure that you're in the group I also have a number of other confirmed guests too, so there should be lots of exciting things happening in there. It's just $10 a month to join, and when you first sign up, I'll also send you a Logo Geek enamel pin badge too. Uh, to join, simply head to community.logogeek.uk where you'll be able to sign up. So that is it for this week, but I will see you again the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast.